to 11. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And you have, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are needy, and you have everything that we need. We believe that your word is sufficient to teach us, instruct us, convict us, build us up, feed us, and make us whole. So God, we appeal to your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, our instructor, our helper, that he would, in omnipotence, give us wisdom and insight and understanding today as we look at your word. We love your word because it points us to Jesus. May that love be evident today, and may we love him and each other and the world better as a result of our time here today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter 5, 5-11. Now we, we touched on the first half of verse 5 last week. Um, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we covered that first part about the younger being subject to the elders, and we talked about the all of you part of clothe yourselves in last week's message. And so today we're going to kind of pick up there right in the middle of this verse. Um, And I said last week, if you were paying attention, you'd know this, I'm just picking on you, Um, that we'd pick back up with the thought of humility. And what that really means here in this verse, and I think the thought pattern of humility carries through to the end of our passage today. And it's not just about what we do with each other, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. But I think understanding humility sets the stage for exactly what we'll see all through this passage. So I want to start today by looking at this word humility and what it means in order to set the stage for all that we will look at today. What, what is this humility that Peter says we are all, as believers, as followers of Jesus, all of us are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another? The Greek word is like a 50-cent word. It's like a big one. Tapinophrosune. Yeah, I don't know if that's right or not, but that's, that's how I say it. And I grew up in Helen, so... Um, Humbleness of mind, humility of mind, lowliness, humility, 
to have a humble opinion of oneself. I don't like it when definitions use its word to define itself. So what does humble mean? It means to be humble. Okay, that doesn't help me any at all, right? Now here we go. A deep sense of one's moral littleness, modesty, lowliness of mind. Now, if we just took that definition, I'm afraid we're prone to run toward thinking badly of ourselves. Oh, I'm I'm not... I'm not nice, I'm, I'm mean, I'm a sinner, I'm a jerk. Um, and what I don't want us to do this morning and through the rest of our lives is to take this word to mean that we're supposed to beat ourselves up. That's not what it's saying. It's not about self-deprecation or being down on yourself. If you want to know why I can say something like that is because Jesus in Matthew 11 says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Lowly in heart there is the same word we're talking about here today with humility. So was Jesus saying, I'm just a jerk. I'm an idiot. So come to me? No, of course not. That No, I mean that's a little facetious, but I hope it's not uh, irreverent. The word for lowly there in that passage is tapeanos, which is the same, has the same root word in it as our word for humility today. And that word there for humility uh, is used several times in the New Testament. It means humble, there's that word again, unpretentious, gentle, meek, mild, implying a low social standing. Okay, What I want us to see here, the main thought is that the humble person is not arrogant or prideful. Jesus, who was perfect man and perfect God in the flesh, did not walk around saying, y'all look at me, I'm pretty awesome. He could have. And he'd have been right. But he didn't do that. He said, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. So this humble person is not arrogant, not prideful, not lifted up, not exalting themselves. The Bible sense lexicon defines it as marked by meekness or modesty. And that word meekness is so expansive. It's so good. It means strength under control. It's a... It's a raging Mustang who lets you ride it. It could toss you, it could stomp you, it could kill you, but it's like you can sit there, it's fine. And you can feel me run underneath you. Meekness. That's the main thought pattern that we're looking at. A right understanding of oneself. It's not, I think it was C.S. Lewis, I think that said, it's not thinking less about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. It also says, possessing the disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately, especially in light of one's sinfulness or creatureliness. Now, I'm spending a lot of time here on this word and thought today to make sure we know not only what the word means, but the extent to which it affects our lives in every area. And today we'll see how it affects our relationships toward one another, like we did last week, how it affects our relationships toward God, toward the devil, and toward suffering. That's where we're going here. The preaching class has always said, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them. Okay? So I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. 
You ready? So the question that I want us to think of when we're thinking about meekness, when we're thinking about humility, is who am I? And what is my place in all of this? How do I perceive and judge myself? And I think what Jordan said this morning was, we tend to go one way or the other. I got it all figured out, or I'm a jerk. And neither are right, by the way. Well, you might be a jerk, I don't know. Um, We have to know where we fit in the story. Listen, we are, all of us individually, the main character in our own story. I am the I that I think about. When I think I, I don't think about you. When I think I, I think about me. So I'm the main character in my head. Okay, I can't, I can't get around that. I am prevailingly me. Okay? But don't take that statement too far. We live our lives from our point of view. I am the I in my story. But we're not the hero of the big story. We're not the main character of the big story. Not even in the story of the corporate setting. And so Peter says that we are to clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility toward one another. I love the call to clothe ourselves. That's, there's several times in, in Scripture where it says that. It's, what, what we clothe ourselves with is what we wear, what we cover ourselves with. It's our adornment. And I couldn't remember where it was, and I started to look back through, but one passage that we discussed about this clothing ourselves, one a passage that we looked at in the past, referred to a nun's outfit, which is called a what? A habit. Our habits... Our clothing project the image of who we are to those around us. And those habits, that clothing, our adornment, listen, is determined by our conscious choice. I pick out what I'm going to wear. <laughs> Look at me. It's the same every week, basically. It's my habit. It's what I'm clothed with. So, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. With humility, modesty, lowliness of mind, like Jesus did. We know who we are individually, and we know our place in the big story. We know who we are in relation to other people. We saw in our, one of our application points last week, Philippians 2, 3-4, to 4, that we are called to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And what followed that passage was the amazing passage that tells us that we're to have the mind in us that is ours in Christ of what... That looks like, as embodied by Jesus, not holding on to his existence as God, but instead took on human flesh and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knew his place. Jesus knew his role in the story. And he could have come and emphasized himself, but instead he chose to empty himself, taking the form of a servant becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he said all through his public ministry, I came to die. Peter's like, nay, Lord, may this never happen to you. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. 
Because you're not serving God's interest, you're serving man's interest. You're serving yourself, really. He thinks he's being nice to Jesus by saying you shouldn't die on a cross. But he's lost his focus and he doesn't want Jesus to die on the cross. But Jesus said, it was for this very reason that I came. And this is God's purpose. This is my role in the story, Peter. And he gave us an example to follow by emptying himself and suffering for us on our behalf. He was God, but he became man in order to fulfill his role as Savior and substitute. So, Paul said in Philippians 2, clothe yourselves with that mindset. That is humility. And so back in our passage from today, Peter then gives us a very good reason for clothing ourselves like this. For... God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now don't miss the connection. The call is not just to humility for humility's sake. Oh, check me out. I'm being very humil, humble. (laughs) It's not just a call to being humble. There's a because to it. For, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For, you should do this because of something. And what is the for? What is the because? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a quote from Proverbs 3, 34, which says in our version, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 34, 4. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of this, this call to humility is due to what God says, how God responds to things. Because He's the one who determines who we are, what we should do, how we should act, how we should conduct ourselves. Why should I clothe myself then with humility toward others? Because God. And in the context of today's passage, I should clothe myself with humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What do I want from God? Do I want opposition from God? Or do I want grace from God? Well, that should be an easy question, right? Now, I'll take grace every time. Every time. So then, be and do what God gives grace for and because of. Which is, in our passage, being humble. Clothing myself with humility toward others. Do I want God to oppose me? Again, I would hope not. But if I am proud, if I am self-seeking, self-exalting, then listen, God opposes or literally God is against me. Humility is not a box to check because it's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be nice. I'm supposed to humble. I'm not supposed to cuss. I'm not, uh, whatever, whatever. That's not what humility is. It's not a box to check. Instead, humility is sought out and employed because God gives grace for those who are humble. And I need grace. So I seek to, in the power that God supplies through His Holy Spirit in me, I seek to be humble. So this humility is not just about my attitude toward other human beings, even though it's at least that. It's also about about my understanding of my position with and toward God Himself. It is not a light statement to say that God opposes the proud. It's a huge statement. God gives grace to the humble. Also huge. So Peter says to align myself in the line of God's grace in order to rightly see my role with and toward others, clothe yourselves with humility, all of you, toward one another. 
And note that. It's all of us toward one another. It, there, there is definitely the corporate connection there. And he is talking to believers. All of us toward one another, clothed with humility. May the clothes that we're wearing, and I don't mean the fabric, may the external adornment of our hearts be visibly humility. And may everybody that we come into contact with within the church say, yes, he has clothed himself with humility. Yes, she has clothed herself with humility. So clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And humility is said here to be the plumb line of what I'm supposed to do and the life preserver of how I'm supposed to do it. Knowing that God will either be for me or against me as a result of how I clothe myself. Humility. Now you're saying, wait a second. Jason, you say all the time, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if God is for us, who could be against us? And that is our plight as Christians, right? And I promise you, if you get off course and try to plow your own line here, what is the word? Your... Oh, row, thank you very much. I couldn't hear you. If you're trying to plow a row that is not in the direction of humility, God will oppose that. He's not mad at you. He doesn't hate you. There's no condemnation, but He is going to frustrate your plans because He disciplines those whom He loves. So don't take this, He opposes me. He opposes the proud because they're, they're hoeing a row. That could have been bad. They're hoeing a row that is not in the plan of God, and God's going to say, no, I'm not going to let you do that. He's going to oppose what you do. That's not in humility. So humility toward one another, knowing that God will show grace or oppose you, centered around that, which Peter expands on in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. So we said God, or Peter said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, what? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, then what should we do? Well, you should humble yourself. We should humble ourselves. Now get that. Humble yourselves. You make the choice to do it yourself. That command is one word in the Greek, humble yourselves. And it means to have a modest opinion of oneself, to behave in an unassuming manner, devoid of all haughtiness. You are commanded here by God, speaking through Peter, commanded to make sure you conduct yourself in a way that is devoid of all haughtiness. You are commanded to have a modest opinion of yourself and to behave in an unassuming manner. Remember, God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. So humble yourself. It's not my place to humble you. It's not your place to humble me. I really knocked him down a peg or two. Not your role. Knock yourself down a peg or two. You do this. And as mentioned earlier, it has to be done in the power that the Spirit Himself supplies. You're not going to do this in the natural power of your flesh. There's no way. The flesh seeks to exalt itself, preserve itself, promote itself. 
So this has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit of God Himself who lives within us. The recognition in itself that I need God's power to do this is humility. You know you can't do it yourself. You need His help. It's the very life of Christ flowing through the believer that will enable him to humble himself. That will enable her to humble herself. And also note that this humbling of yourself is not just some weird, nondescript thing that's somewhere in your own head or heart. It's under the mighty hand of God. It was the hand of God that had delivered the people of God out of Egypt. It is at the right hand of God that Christ is currently seated. And that hand mindset is a designation of power, of strength. And Peter calls it the mighty hand of God to emphasize that. So this humbling of yourself is a recognition of God's power in light of our weakness in and of ourselves. It's like asking for help from someone you know is more competent than you. I can't, but they can. I'm going to be all relevant for a minute. You ready for me to be relevant? Any NBA fans here? There's not many NBA fans left, by the way. I can't hardly watch it anymore. But anyway, it'd be like if you had to go to a three-point shooting contest and you had a choice to ask somebody to shoot on your behalf, who would you pick? I'd pick Steph Curry. It's like going to Steph Curry and saying, will you shoot my shots for me? And he says, yeah, I'll do that. I'm going to win, y'all. I'm going to win because he's going to do it for me. If I do it myself, did y'all see? No, never. I won't get into the movies. I'm not a shooter. Let's, Let's just say that. I might have a nice pass here or there, but I'm not a shooter, so I go to Steph and I say, like I know him, will you shoot my shot? Yeah, I'll do that for you. It's understanding that I can't, but that he can. You recognize your inability and you recognize his ability and trust in him to do better than you ever could. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Recognize that you need his grace and know that he gives grace to the humble. So you come to him and say, I can't, but I believe you can. Don prays all the time that God would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And I'd say, yeah, that, that's it. And again, Peter doesn't just stop with a command. He gives us a motivation for it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And again, this gets back to the Philippians passage we mentioned earlier about doing what we do not about doing what we do, not only for ourselves, but for the sake of others. And then it goes on to Jesus' example of emptying himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. And what happened after he emptied himself? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, I said it at the end of the music, or before Hannah sung that song, Jesus' humility led to his exaltation. He emptied himself, and the farther down he went, the more his exaltation would be. He emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So then back in our first Peter passage, Peter says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Sometime after the humbling comes the exaltation. But note that there is some time in between. We humble ourselves and sometime later at the proper time, Peter says, God exalts us. What happens in the in-between? Whatever God decrees. 
And judging from what Peter has said up to this point in his letter and what he's going to say later, that's going to include some suffering, trials, hardships, and the such. And then, after all that transpires, God will exalt us. He'll lift us up. He'll call us to the high place with Him that is indicative of the glory that He is keeping for us and keeping us for. Humble yourself and He will exalt you. But note, it will be in His timing. It will come at the proper time. So don't try to rush things. I had to humble myself now. Up with it. No. Humble yourself. Be humble. Stay humble. And in God's timing, at the perfect time, at the proper time, He will exalt you to the high place in Christ that we occupy now, but that we will physically occupy at the time of our exaltation. And whatever God ordains between now and then is right, says the humble person. And this humbling has another component too. Verse 7. Woo-wee. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now, I just absolutely, positively love this. Humbling yourself doesn't mean that you come and talk about how bad or awful you are. God, I'm a jerk. I'm an idiot. God, I know you probably shouldn't even acknowledge me. Because I'm just a a worm. Instead, Peter says part of humbling ourselves includes casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Yea, verily. Part of the humbling is acknowledging that you have anxieties. Shame on the church in America that says you shouldn't have any anxieties. Shame on us. Part of the humbling, I'll say again, is acknowledging that you have anxieties. The word anxieties means a cause for feeling concern. Things that make you feel feelings of concern or worry. I'm concerned about this. And what are we to do with these concerning, worrisome feelings? Marinate ourselves in them? Just the opposite. Cast all of them on God. That's not a one-time thing. All right, I did it. No more anxieties. That's what the church is teaching, I'm afraid. You should have done cast that on Jesus. Well, no, but (laughs) I'm even anxious about whether I did or not. Did I? I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. Cast them. The word means to throw, hurl, or place upon. And the definition says to place or put something on something else with great energy. Conceived of as throwing on forcefully. I come into the presence of God. I'm going to be relevant again. And I yeet my anxieties upon God Himself. Look it up, y'all, if you don't know what yeet means. Y-E-E-T. The force of the casting shows the desire you have to be rid of them. You're not like, oh, well, right here. No, you're like, no, take this, take this, take this. I don't want it anymore. And this is part of the humbling process. Admitting that I have concerns or worries and throwing them on God for Him to deal with them so that I don't have to. I can't, but you can, so take these. And while you're at it, take this one too. And when this one comes up in a minute, I'm going to throw it on you again. 
All of them. And why should I do this? To humble myself? Yeah. But also, Peter says, I should do this because he cares for you. And do not miss that. Listen to me, church. The exalted God of the universe, the Almighty, the Omnipotent One, commands us to humble ourselves, and that humbling ourselves includes casting our cares upon Him because He cares for you. Man, He wants to take our cares. He wants us to see His greatness and our smallness because He cares for us. And that's one of the best becauses in the Bible, y'all. What a welcoming reason to humble yourself. I can't help but think of the relationship between husband and wife in Ephesians 5, where husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loves the church, and wives are called to submit to their husband. You're like, why are you bringing that up here? How easy is it to submit to somebody when the one you're submitting to is laying down his life for you? How easy is it to humble yourself under and cast your cares upon the one who cares for you? Christian, church, please know that God Himself cares for you. And then it just makes sense to submit to Him and cast all your cares upon Him. And we don't do it because I just want rid of my cares. We do it because we know He cares. I need gas, so I go to the gas station. I need grace, so I cast my cares upon Jesus because He cares for me. So we've seen how we're to clothe ourselves toward one another, how we're supposed to clothe ourselves toward God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But we also have an enemy, don't we? How do we respond and relate to Him? Now this is, this is pretty big. 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, oh, how do we, how do we see our role with the devil? Again, I think we go one of two ways. He's scary and he's behind every bush and he possesses every bad dog that's in our neighborhood and he's going to get us and old scratch is going to get you. You better watch out. He's going to get you. He's going to get you. He's going to get you. Well, gee. Or we're like, he ain't nothing. Neither are right. Neither are right. So this verse brings up our adversary, the devil. The literal reading of your adversary, the devil, is your accuser, the slanderer. The idea is this being is not your friend, to be sure. You as a believer have an enemy. We as the church have an enemy. He hates you. And in true antichrist fashion, he lives not ever to intercede for us, but instead he ever lives to slander and accuse you. To yourself and to God and to other people. And get that picture fully entrenched in your mind. This is what you're up against. How are we to respond to him? Well, first, be sober-minded, be watchful. Peter has said that we are to be sober-minded before, back in 113 when he called on his readers to be sober-minded and to set their hope fully on the grace that Jesus is bringing at his revelation. Sober-minded means to be clear in your thinking, not impaired in your judgment. So have a right apprehension of who it is you're dealing with here. He also says to be watchful. That just means to be on the lookout. Watch for for what might be coming. 
And why would we be sober-minded and watchful? Because this accusing slanderer prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You want to get devoured? I don't know. No, you don't want to get devoured. So be sober-minded and be watchful. There's a lion on the loose. Our enemy is like a roaring lion. Anybody ever heard a lion roar in real life? I know I've told this story before, but we were in Ghana and we were at a, at a zoo where they put all the retired lions, the old ones. And we, there were steel bars that I would guess were three or four inches thick and they were about an inch apart from each other. There was no way that lion could get out of that cage. Thank God. He was an old fellow, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to wrestle with him. And we're standing there and I'm probably, I don't know, I'm probably from here to the front row from him and I'm just not paying attention and dude roars. And it scared me to death. He couldn't get to me. Thank God. But he scared the Fushnickens out of me. That's for all my Fushnickens fans out there. He let a roar rip and it was terrifying. I knew he couldn't get out or get me, but the roar itself was enough to completely freak me out. The devil is like a roaring lion, seeking someone he can devour. And that means exactly what it says. He's not just looking to annoy you. My pillow's not cold on the other side. The devil's after me. Jesus said in John 10 that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can, he will. He prowls around looking for the stray wildebeest that has wandered from the flock. Crikey. And he is no joke. He is a formidable opponent. There are teachings from this passage that I've heard that say he only has a roar. He's been defanged by Jesus. But I don't think Peter would call on these believers who are experiencing persecution to be on the lookout for him if he couldn't touch them. He will roar. He will freak you out. He will devour you. So, what's my attitude toward him? First, be sober-minded and be watchful. But that's not our only attitude toward this accuser. Verse 9. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So how are we to deal with this roaring, accusing slanderer who hates us and is seeking to devour us? We are to resist him. We're not called to run from him. We're not even told to fear him, truthfully. And we're also not told to dismiss him. We're told to resist him oppose him, to be against him. Ephesians 6, it says several times there right near the end, we're called to stand against him and having done all to stand. And that seems to be exactly what Peter's saying here. Resist him. And how do we do that? By being firm in your faith. We stand eye to eye with the roaring lion and we do so by rooting and grounding ourselves in the truth and the power of our faith. You're like, faith, that's kind of ethereal, right? Faith in what? I think a better question is faith in who? Our faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where all of our faith is to rest. That is the faith that we are to stand upon. 
Jesus stood face to face and toe to toe with the devil in the desert, this same lion. He stood toe-to-toe with the devil in Gethsemane. He stood toe-to-toe with the devil on the cross. And Jesus was three and oh. He was actually like probably like a million, billion to oh. Jesus won every battle. And now all the hope we have of resisting the devil is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I cannot stand before the devil alone. Listen to me, he is wiser, stronger, and craftier than me. He knows the Bible better than me. And he has at least 6,000 years of experience over me. But he cannot hold a candle to the eternal one, to the one who created him. He can't hold a candle to Jesus. The devil is the Lord's devil, Luther says. And all Satan can do is what Jesus allows him to do. So I resist the devil, firm in my faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for me. When the devil accuses me for the sins I commit, that I commit, I stand and I trust in the forgiveness that Jesus bought for me with his blood. When the devil roars and seeks to frighten me, I trust in Jesus' power to protect and to comfort me. Resist him, that slandering liar, firm in your faith. And know, Peter says, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Another way of resisting is to know that any suffering or struggling that you are experiencing is not unique. You're not alone. Your brotherhood, your spiritual family all over the world is experiencing these sufferings too. Your brothers and sisters all over the world are standing face to face with the devil standing firm in their faith as well. And that might not seem like much comfort, but it's wonderful to know that what you're experiencing is not just you. Anybody got one or ten or a hundred of those sins that you're really embarrassed of and hope nobody ever finds out about? Chances are most of the people in this room have or are dealing with it. Take the mask off of it. You remove its power when you expose it. I'm struggling with this and somebody says, man, I've struggled with that my whole life. And you're like, really? Yeah. There's power in that. The devil's over here whispering, you are awful. You're terrible. Nobody would like you if they knew you did things or thought things like this. You're a terrible sinner. And you look at him and you go, man, I am a terrible sinner. And i got a fantastic Savior. And I know that my brothers surrounding me are wrestling with you in the same way. And I know that you're a liar and I'm not alone. And I'm not defeated. And I am made whole by the blood of Jesus. And so are my brothers all around the world. The same lies you're telling them, you're telling me. And I don't believe them anymore. There is comfort in knowing that what you're experiencing is not just you. I see this all the time in therapy. People come into the the office... And they're like, oh, you're not going to believe this, but I stole something. I'm like, oh my gosh, no, I've never heard that before in my life. <sighs> you wouldn't believe this, but I had a real bad thought about my kids the other day. Nope, I don't believe it. Shame on you. The clinical term is Normalizing. People come in and think nobody's gone through what they're going through. And then when they find out that it's common, it's like, oh, really? 
Yeah, really. It's like a relief for him. It robs the problems of a lot of power. And that's what Peter's saying here. And if God is sustaining your brothers all over the world, working in and through them as they stand and resist the devil, he will sustain you and working in and through you too. You're suffering, they're suffering, and God knows. Oh, shoot, it's not just me. No, I, pr- I promise you it's not just you. And God knows and God sees. And verse 10 verifies this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, if you do things right and good enough, will think about possibly allowing you into heaven. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself... Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Man, what a verse. This, that's, that's a really good verse, y'all. They're all good, but this one's really good. Peter, never shy to bring up suffering, again says that his readers will indeed suffer. And he says that after this suffering, which will be a little while, God is going to bless them. Now that little while is not specific for sure. Uh, Revelation 2 Talking to the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, after you've suffered 10 days. That doesn't mean 10 days. <laughs> it means it's, it's going to be a brief period of life compared to what follows it. It's not specific, but Peter is ensuring that they know that whatever they go through will not compare to what follows. Paul says it'll all feel like nothing compared to the glory that God is preparing for us. Because after this little while, the God of all grace will do something. Now, that's a great title for God. The God of all grace. God Himself is the source of all the grace that we will ever experience or need. And that's comforting, especially in the midst of suffering. And this God, who is the source of all grace, has also called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Again, what a phrase. God is the God who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Three three components there. God called you. He called you to His eternal glory, and that eternal glory is in Christ. All three of those phrases call for deep reflection. That can be your homework, by the way. To look at those three phrases and just saturate yourselves with them. Immerse yourselves in them. Deeply reflect and meditate on them. We don't have time to do it today because we're running out of time. But wow, remember, Peter is calling on the recipients of this letter and us as well, because we're recipients of this letter, to resist the devil in the midst of their suffering by pointing them to keep a firm grasp of their faith in God. And this God called them. Back in 1 Peter 2.9... It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yes, the God of all grace called them. The God of all grace called us. The God of all grace called you. It was his doing to call in the first place. If he had not called, we would not have answered. And he called them and us to his eternal glory. Full stop for a second. Oh my. God, 
who told Isaiah that he would not share his glory with anyone or anything else, called his people to his eternal glory. That's an amazing statement. No, he did not call us to come to heaven someday and sit on a cloud and strum a harp for eternity. No, he called us to his eternal glory. And that makes me think about the opening words of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Listen, listen to this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now watch this. I glorified you, Jesus says to the Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the eternal glory that God has called us to. The same glory that Christ shares with the Father. Oh my That's the glory that the God of all grace has called us into. And that glory, as Jesus prayed, is in Christ. Jesus is indeed glorified with the glory that he shared with the Father before the world existed. And we are called into that. We are called into that in the very person of Jesus Christ, whom we have been immersed into, baptized into, by the doing of God the Father. Wow. And that God will himself restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you, Peter said back there in 5.10. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These suffering believers need to know that what follows all of this is not just better than what we're going through. They need to know that it is solidly and eternally for their good and for the glory of God. So Peter says that after all of it, God will do a full work for their good. God will himself restore them. Restore means to make someone or something what they ought to be. Confirm means to make one's soul strong. Strengthen means to strengthen. (laughs) It means to make strong and stable. And establish means to give a stable foundation. God himself will do all of this for his people after they have suffered for a little while. That is indeed great news and is fuel for the fire to suffer well and entrust ourselves to the God who will do all of this for us. And then at the end of the passage, Peter resorts to a familiar statement in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter had said at the end of 4.11, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now here in the next chapter in Verse 11, oddly enough. You numerologists can feast on that if you want to. I'm not not like that. Um, Here he says almost the same thing. Just like he just seems to break out in worship at the thought of all this. It's like he can't contain himself. So he again ascribes dominion to God. To him, Peter says, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion is power, ruling, controlling power. And Peter says that all the ruling, controlling power is to be to God forever and ever. The very nature of God is ruling, controlling, sovereign power. 
He is in control of all of it. He is directing all of it. And to that, Peter says, Amen. But haven't you seen? The whole world's gone crazy. To God be the dominion forever. And ever. Amen. All is going according to plan. All always has gone according to plan. All will always go according to plan. To Him be the dominion forever. Peter says, so be it. Amen. It's very good news that to God be all dominion forever and ever. It's very good news to Peter. And before he ends his letter with some final greetings, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, before he ends his letter, Peter wants to celebrate that dominion belongs to God and he wants to give God glory for all of it. May we as well respond likewise, thanking and praising God for His ruling power in the midst of our sufferings and the eternal glory that comes after them. So we turn our attention to application. Four B's today. How do we apply this passage? How do we live in light of it? Brothers, that's the first B. Second one's a reach, I'll admit it. Baddie, B-A-D-D-Y. Don't laugh at me. (laughs) You can laugh at me, I don't care. I'm so humble. Um, Brothers, baddie, bruises. That one I was quite proud of, actually. And beloved. Brothers, baddie, bruises, and beloved. Somebody needs to write that song. And what we'll be looking at with these four headings, these four B's, we'll be focusing on our attitudes toward these four headings. And it would seem that humility is the key component of it all in our passage today. Knowing our role, knowing our place in the story, so that our attitude is right toward, first, our brothers. If we go back to the very beginning here, and we look at what Peter calls us to. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Who's that for? If you are a believer, if you're three years old, if you're 97, if you're 62, if you're 14, it's for you. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. What does that mean? How should I live in light of that? Each one of you should look out not only for your own interests, Paul said in Philippians, but also for the interests of others. Count others as more important than yourselves. And let me tell you what, it's not about gritting your teeth and saying, fine, I'll do it. No, that's not humility. It's going to God and saying, I am very inconvenienced by this. Will you help me to do this the right way in the power of your spirit to the praise of your glorious grace and for the good of my brother or sister so that I'm not hateful? Anybody ever feel hateful? It's kind of the opposite of humility. Hateful is that person that says, I should get my way because it's what I want. Humility is I want you to have your way because it's what I want. You can't do that yourself. But it's exactly what Jesus did, right? And so the same spirit that gave that grace to Jesus to accomplish that while he was on earth, that same spirit now lives in you. And I think a great prayer is, God, please help me to humble myself 
so that you don't have to humble me. God, help me by the power of your Holy Spirit to have this mind, which is mine in Christ Jesus, that I would empty myself and take the form of a servant and become obedient to your will and to the needs of my brothers and sisters all around me. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, all of you. My goodness gracious, what would it look like for a group of people who literally put the interest of the others before themselves? And everybody was doing that. It's like you're standing at the door, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you, I insist, you go first. No, you, it's not that. You don't have to worry about your needs because somebody else is going to meet them. And so you can focus on helping other people with other needs. And that's only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit living the life of Christ out through you. These people in this room that are covenant members of this church and even those that aren't covenant members, they're not second class citizens by the way, you clothe yourself with humility toward them. Especially here. And all of your brothers and sisters throughout the world. Clothe yourselves with humility. That's how. That's your attitude towards your brothers. That's your place in the story with your brothers. Now, what about the baddie? B-A-D-D-Y. We know how we're supposed to conduct ourselves toward one another. How do we conduct ourselves toward the enemy? We're to be watchful and we're to be sober-minded first. That's the first thing that Peter said. Sober-minded, I have a right apprehension of who this devil is. I'm not paranoid, but I'm also not indifferent. I'm watching. I'm looking, devil. I'm watching. I see what you're trying to do, and you're not going to catch me by surprise. And then when you try it, baddie, you resist him. Firm in your faith. You stand against him, holding up the shield of faith. Taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. You can go through all that Ephesians 6 armor stuff, breastplate, belt, shoes, all that stuff. Prepare yourself with all that and stand. Now, I love the word stand because I'm not trying to take something he's got. He's coming at me and I'm standing here on the ground that Christ has already won. I am fighting from victory, not for victory. This is a defensive battle, not an offensive battle. Standing means this far and no farther. Thus saith the Lord. Well, who are you to tell me that? I am His child and His Spirit lives in me. And I've been saved by the blood of Jesus. And you know that better than anybody. And I've got no authority over you, devil. But I know who has all authority. I know who has all authority. And you got none. Yours is a defeated kingdom, and we're occupying this land until Jesus comes back. It's all His now. Not arrogant. Don't be arrogant toward the devil. He'll devour you. But standing firm, resisting Him, firm in your faith, because you know who has defeated Him. So does He. If you try to get into a one-on-one battle with the devil, you're going to lose. But if you stand firm on your faith, you will resist him. Resist him firm in your faith. That's your attitude toward the devil. Nothing more, nothing less. Brothers, batty, bruises. What is our attitude towards suffering? 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Your suffering is real. It is hard. It is bad. And you will persevere through it. Because you have a hope in Christ that none of this is going to last. This is for a little while. And yeah, we can pray that God's going to take it away. He probably isn't going to. He can. And maybe He will. I'm not saying don't pray that. But don't despair when you pray and it doesn't go away. Our attitude toward persecution through suffering is perseverance and hope. I will persevere and I have my hope entrenched firmly in the glory that will be revealed to me after this momentary light suffering. And it's all momentary light suffering compared to the eternal glory that He has prepared for us that we will be given when all things come to fruition. I'm not making light of your suffering. It's hard. It's bad. It's a big deal. Persevere through it with hope in the finished work of Christ and in the love and the grace that your Father has given you. That's our attitude towards suffering. Bruises. Brothers, batty bruises, and finally, beloved. Who is thee, beloved? Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus Christ, the one who intercedes for us between God and man. The Holy Spirit of God who works in and through us to do what we can't do ourselves. What is our attitude toward Him? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace... Himself will do for you what you couldn't do yourself. To Him be the dominion forever. That's our attitude toward the beloved. Humility, waiting, and worship. In the midst of whatever it is, however it is, whenever it is, whoever it is. Our eyes are on Jesus. Our eyes are on the Father. Our eyes are turned toward the power of the Holy Spirit to do in and through us what we can't do ourselves. That's humility. We humbly wait for His timing, the proper time, and in the midst of it all and throughout all of eternity, we worship Him. That's our attitude toward God. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Resist the devil firm in your faith. Know that the same sufferings you're suffering are being experienced. And after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's the God of all grace. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that nothing, not an atom in this vast universe is outside of your control. Nothing. No one. And God, in your infinite greatness, you set your love on us in eternity past. And you came in the form of a man 
And you humbled yourself, Jesus, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Father, you then exalted your Son to the place of highest praise, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we know that He is the example that we are to follow. So help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And may we willingly, patiently, worshipfully suffer for a little while, knowing that when it's all said and done, God, you will strengthen, establish, confirm, and give us the hope of eternal glory in you, in Christ Jesus, through the power of your Spirit. And Father, if someone here today does not know that hope, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak life that you would quicken them, raise them to new life, that they would see their need for a Savior and bring their sins to Jesus to have them all forgiven and taken out of the way by grace through faith and that they would be a new creation with a new heart, a heart that is willing and able to obey you and give you glory. May they confess their sins and may they know that Jesus is the only one who can save them from their sins. And help us all, God, to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another and humble ourselves under your mighty hand. To you belongs the dominion forever and ever. In Jesus' name we confess it and amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.